0: You see that providers are really starving for more autonomy, flexibility, and freedom in their life. Not only that, the future of work is, you know, definitely upon us. And, you know, work from home culture and all these things. And doctors and NPs and PAs and, and the like are seeing their friends and other people have flexibility in how they work. And so it's no wonder that, you know, more doctors want to be able to do telemedicine. And it's no wonder that they want to be able to split their time in different modes of home and work and you know clinic and everything right and they want to have more ownership of their career and
1: more flexibility and more freedom let's discover the cleveland entrepreneurial ecosystem we are telling the stories of its entrepreneurs and those supporting them welcome to the lay of the land podcast where we are exploring what people are building in cleveland I'm your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today's guest is someone who I've had the pleasure of working with and learning from over the last year as both a partner and collaborator through my time at Actual. Manoj Javeri is one of those people who who is genuinely kind and who unsolicited will every time go out of his way to be supportive and helpful. Uh, My own personal admiration and respect aside, Manoj is the co-founder and CEO of Higher Medical, a health tech startup based here in Cleveland, Ohio. And Hire is really on a mission to transform the $18 billion healthcare staffing industry by making it easier for clinicians to find the best freelance opportunities while simultaneously offering more flexibility for medical practices and other healthcare employers. The growing healthcare freelance economy really presents nuanced challenges and a massive opportunity for a company like Hire to enable an elastic on-demand workforce all of which we're going to explore in much more detail in this conversation. I hope you all enjoy it. To start out, I feel like we have to preface that you and I actually know each other pretty well and have been you know, working together over the last year on our companies respectively, but also collaboratively. So I'm glad that we can share your story here to the greater Cleveland community and beyond. Absolutely, man. Yeah. So I know we'll, we'll dive right into to higher Medical and, and talk about the problem space and everything that you're doing to solve the, the problems there. But I, I want to start with just some you know personal context setting. Looking back on your career so far, what has been the common thread really that ties your path together in, in founding a, a healthcare company?
0: Yeah, I think for me, you know, I, I sort of have to go back to my parents and being a son of a two immigrants from India who, you know, really grew up in just slum type conditions, you know, extreme, extreme poverty. I once visited where they grew up, my mom and dad, when I was like 16. It was one of my first trips to India. I was there for like a month and a half and got to really understand after 16 years, like where they came from. Because I was born in Chicago suburbs. You know, it was like, it was the first time it really hit me like, holy crap, this is where they were able to come out from. You know, like there's, you know, my dad passed away like two years ago. And there's like, you think about all these things, like after your, after a parent passes away, like, I wish I said this. And I wish I said that the thing I wish I could say to my dad is like, how did you come out of that and come to America and even live a middle-class lifestyle coming from that background, you know? Mm-hmm. And I mean, he did it because he was top of his class. And my mom also worked really hard and studied hard. And my dad got scholarships to finally, you know, leave India. And he was able to come to Berkeley on a scholarship in 1962. And, you know, my, my mom and dad were like 20, 21. They had like a totally arranged marriage, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you see in uh, Indian movies. And uh, yeah, I mean, that, that whole immigrant story and they would send money back to their family in India, and they just worked really, really hard all the time. So for me, that's where I think a lot of my passion, my, my work ethic, my desire to, to, to do something creative, and, and my common thread, I would say, is problem solving. You know, Solving tough problems that are multifaceted and multidisciplinary and thorny. That's always sort of been my common thread. I studied engineering, mechanical, industrial engineering like early in my career. I worked in semiconductor, aerospace industries. Was working on the <laughs> in the clean rooms and the fabs when I was like right out of college, like all over the world like in Asia and Germany and all kinds of places and you know was was doing like hardcore design and mechanical engineering type work. But then I knew I didn't want to it was it was too narrow for me, so I wanted to mm-hmm. get more into something that combined business and engineering. Didn't really know that much about business, to be honest with you, but I knew I wanted to do maybe something like management consulting. So ended up moving at that time from Silicon Valley to Cleveland. I mean, I grew up in the Chicago area, but I had lived in Silicon Valley for a little while, was doing engineering there. Then came to Ohio, and I bounced around Ohio a little bit, but I eventually settled in Cleveland when I started working for Deloitte. Was there for uh, about eight years. Ah, uh, doing product development consulting, so like innovation, product development type work. It was a good like combination of engineering and business skills. Getting to combine those two disciplines and help companies with all kinds of interesting challenges. Everything from people, process, technology, and then I w- worked for a couple of years. I wanted to get some time off the road because I was traveling Monday through Thursday, like for four, you know, so four days a week of travel sure the traditional consulting <laughs> yeah, lifestyle every every week for like you know many many years and you know at that point uh, at the end of deloitte i had you know two kids at that point so i wanted to settle down a little bit I ended up taking a job locally with vitamix i was there for a couple years gave me a good chance to think about what i want to do i knew like vitamix was not like i knew i wasn't like a uh, i knew i didn't want to be like in a in a large corporate environment although vitamix was kind of mid-sized but it gave me a chance to think about, what do I want to do? I had very long drives from my home <laughs> in Cleveland Heights to Vitamix, which was in uh, you know, quite, quite, quite a long ways. It was in Olmsted Township. So it like had a one hour there and one hour back, and I'd listen to a lot of podcasts and audiobooks. And I sort of credit that time to helping me realize that I want to do something on my own. So then I started my own strategy innovation consulting company after I left Vitamix. did that for like a year and a half. It was doing pretty well, and then I randomly met Ferris, who is a physician here in Cleveland. I met him at a startup competition, and from there, that's where a lot of things started with Hire Medical.
1: Yeah, so that's that's really interesting because I I have a lot of context, you know, working with you over the last year on Hire, but I I realized (laughs) I didn't actually know the founding story, and so I was wondering, you know, if the idea came or if the founding team came or you know what what came first. So so you and Ferris had met. How did what were those initial steps like to, to actually put the idea of hire together and, you know, jump into to founding and, and starting a company?
0: The intent that I had when I first met Ferris and we started working on some projects together was not to start a company or that I want to have a startup in technology and healthcare. It was none of that. Actually, I worked in so many industries when I was at Deloitte. And I mean, I worked in, you know, I did projects for, you know companies that I mean I did a project for the Joint Strike Fighter I did a project for Medtronic like I did all kinds of industries right and the one industry I never worked in was like healthcare <laughs> <laughs> that was the one thing and I and I remember even thinking to myself like because I knew people in Cleveland who did healthcare work I'm like man I'll never do healthcare work <laughs> you know like that's right right not, that's not my thing like I I I do like things like I do projects with like Caterpillar or you know semiconductor companies or whatever. But I, I also think though I'm a very like curious person. So I actually do like just enjoying, I enjoy learning about areas that I have no knowledge of. So that, that sort of serves me well. And sometimes when you're having, when you have a startup, it, it's an advantage to not have the ingrained knowledge of the industry, because sure, then you... you don't necessarily think about things in the, in the way that everybody else does. Right, so beginner's mindset. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the reason I met Ferris is I went, I signed up for a startup competition. Um, it was very similar to like Startup Weekend. It was modeled after that. And I went there to learn about startup techniques so I could bring them back to my corporate clients for the consulting company that I had. So mm-hmm. I was trying to learn more about like lean startup techniques and design thinking and things like that. And I was doing workshops with clients that were large clients, like Fortune 500s, like, like Campbell Soup and things like that. My intention was not like, I want to have a startup, but then I, I, I went to this thing and I didn't have a team. I went by myself. I heard a bunch of people just, you, people line up, you know, and they give their pitches, right? And right. Ferris gave a pretty good pitch about an idea that he was talking about around like optimization for residency programs and scheduling. And, you know, I had like an operations research background back when I did like, a, before my MBA, I did a, a master's in OR. So, I was like, yeah, that sounds pretty cool. You know, I, I know some stuff around that. And ended up working with Ferris over 54 hours. Like, you do like a 54 hour hackathon where you don't sleep much and people don't, people don't <laughs> bathe and everyone smells. And, um, uh, it's a, it's a and you're just like working like crazy. And, you know, we became friends in that short period of time and we liked working together and we pitched together to the judges and we won first place, which was like really exciting. I mean, they give you like a $2,000 check and it's like a really gigantic check.
1: And we're like, wow, Yeah, one of that. those massive physical.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so, so we were like, wow, that's pretty cool. You know, so then we started working on a few different things together and we started, we actually formed a company called MedRocket. Um, it's like the worst name, but we, we formed a company around this residency scheduling software and we had like a working software and everything. And uh, we started marketing it to residency programs. And, but there's not like that many residents. I mean, there's a lot of, there's like, you know. Like a thousand residency programs in the United States, but you know it's not like a, a largely growing market, and it's hard to sell into. And even the software itself didn't like. I mean, you know, maybe you sell it once, and <laughs> but we didn't think about all those things. We just thought, well, you know, to have a business, you you create something, and it solves a problem, and then people buy it, and then you have a business. You know, but we didn't think about like all the scalability and the market size and the total addressable market. And like, we just thought it was cool to create this thing that solved the problem, which was a good, good lesson for us to realize that having a startup is way more than creating a, a point solution to a, a problem. Even even if it is a really painful problem, that's not enough. So there is a pivot for MedRocket. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the rocket, the <laughs> rocket... uh Let's just say that the the rocket um, went up for a little bit and then it crashed for sure. Actually, the, the best thing is that, so I still kept running my startup and Ferris and I on the nights and weekends with another couple people too, started working on this project on the side, like a side gig type of project. And remember we went to some conferences together and all this kind of stuff. And so we didn't really kind of know what we were doing with it and we ended up, finally meeting uh, Matthew Miller, who at that time was at Bioenterprise, you know, that was the best thing because we'd never really met with any like advisors who knew about startups and raising capital and all this kind of stuff. And I remember like the kindest thing Matthew did is he just told us, he's like, (laughs) we pitched him and everything. And he's like, guys, this idea is never going (laughs) to (laughs) work. He's like, the market's too small. Your margins are like super tiny. This total like You know, it's like a very point solution, you know, to to this need. And even if you fulfill it, like what then, you know? And there's just a lot of different things that he brought up, and we realized that, like, it's you know, maybe it's something you like sell, like on an app store or something. But it's not like an entire business that you create around this thing. But you know, the cool thing was that, like, a few weeks before we met Matthew, Ferris and I, I remember exactly where we were. We went to a JumpStart event, and after the event was over, we were sitting in the lobby, and we were talking about Ferris's upcoming shifts where he was going to, he was doing a fellowship and GI at Cleveland Clinic, but on the side, he used to do locum's work. So locum is a Latin word for standing in the place of somebody else. So oftentimes when a hospital is understaffed, or people are on vacation or maternity or things like that, they use, for example, a resident or they use someone who likes to do this kind of locums work and fill in the place of other people and doesn't have a W-2 full-time employment. And uh, they, they'll just kind of borrow from other places. And so he was doing this kind of work, but the more and more we talked about it, the entire process for everything from discovery of the job to you know the the negotiations and the discrimination that often occurs, the dealing with agencies the haggling, the non-transparency of the entire transaction, the paperwork, the FedEx envelopes and snail mail and faxes and emails and phone calls, the bombardment of phone calls by staffing agencies that he'd often get, and then the credentialing process itself and the privileging and then finally getting to work somewhere. And it was just like a tremendous amount of pain. And like I could definitely see it on his face where it's just like, Yeah, he's happy to have these couple assignments. He was working in like Ashtabula and Akron General, but like was not in a consumer-friendly process by any means. It was just pain, pain, pain. And so we we created a a a little like pitch deck around what if we were able to like make this entire process like a consumer-friendly process and like with the doctor at the center and make it so that the process was even enjoyable and and streamlined and leveraged technology that you know because we noticed that there's no innovation in this space since like 1990 you know right, and right. it's like you know there's got there's so much low hanging fruit here there's got to be some opportunity that other people are looking at so of course we started looking at other companies that are doing things in the space but we didn't really find a lot so then when we met with Matthew that first time we had that in our back pocket and I remember that day we said well there's this other thing that we've been like like fooling around with and at the time it was called <laughs> the name of the company was h-i-g-h-e-r like hire hire oh my god it wasn't even h-y-r <laughs> and it was like this this like cokey logo and it was like this you know we showed it to him he's like you know what you guys are not complete idiots after all like this is actually a pretty good idea you know <laughs> he's like you know well maybe work on this a little bit more and then like come talk to me again and and then we, we just kept annoying him and <laughs> we kept coming back and kept we're like, back. well, we have a little bit more research that we've done. We have a little bit more research that we've done. And the little snowball started getting bigger and bigger. And then finally, I started becoming so obsessed with higher medical that I said, you know what, I'm not even thinking about my consulting company. I'm thinking more about this and my obsession with higher medical. Let me just shut down my consulting company. So I think in the middle of 2017, I completely shut down my consulting business and I said, I'm just going to go all in with this company, which was weird because when I look back at it, it's like, I couldn't pay myself anything with the company. I was like, oh, I'll just live off of some of my savings and I'll empty out my 401k. And it was a weird time in my life too, because I was also going through a divorce at the exact same time all this was happening. So maybe I was having a midlife crisis or something. I don't know. But... (laughs) There's a lot of there's a lot of shit going on at that time in my life. Yeah. And I was navigating, you know, the fact that, you know, I was living in my house by myself in the house that my ex wife and I lived in for like 14 years together, where we raised our kids there. And and then now all of a sudden my kids were sharing time between my house and her house. And it was like this weird alternate universe. And and then I like have this startup and I like and I had money coming in for my consulting business. And something something made me say, you know what? I'm just gonna
1: do something crazy, and why not? You know, life is short. Life is short. So, so what? What is higher medical? What is this creation? I
0: mean, at its core, the way I like to describe it now is it's a solution, um, and it 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 is all about enabling an elastic, on-demand workforce, and that is something that helps providers because, and I mean, this was pre-COVID, obviously, and everything, but. Even more so now you see that providers are really starving for more autonomy, flexibility, and freedom in their life. Not only that, the future of work is, you know, definitely upon us. And you know, work from home culture and all these things. And doctors and NPs and PAs and, and the like are seeing their friends and other people have flexibility in how they work. And so it's no wonder that, you know, more doctors want to be able to do telemedicine. And it's no wonder that they wanna be able to split their time in different modes of home and work and you know clinic and everything right and they want to have more ownership of their career and more flexibility and more freedom and be able to say hey i want to take a couple months off and go travel overseas and then i want to resume working as a doctor and you know i want to have now not every doctor is like that and and, you know not every provider is like that but a lot more are like that and you have a freelance economy that's growing and growing You have 59 million people in the U.S. doing freelance work, and it's not only Uber drivers, right? It's, it's, It's people who are highly, highly skilled professions, like physicians, like software developers, all kinds of things, right? You know, highly educated people. So when the idea of being a locum first started in 1970, it started, I think, in Utah. At that time in the world, being a locum was considered like, oh, you're a locum, like you can't find a real job, you know? you must be a bottom of the barrel type of doctor who's like not as good as other people. And maybe there was some truth to that at that time, but I mean fast forward 50 years, that's not the case at all. And so we're providing a platform, a software platform and an overall experience that allows providers and employers to connect directly, transparently, quickly, automate many portions of the credentialing process which is obviously where the partnership with Actual comes in big time. And there's still, you know, a lot a lot of work to still do there. And there's just many other things that I haven't even mentioned. But it's not only for the for the sake of the provider that we want to create an elastic on-demand workforce, it's also for the sake of the employer, right? Because look at something like COVID, right? You had surges in localized areas all over the country coming, ebbing and flowing. And, you know, you have more demand somewhere and less demand somewhere else, and You don't have a, most hospitals were staffed with either, you know, medical groups that contract with them, or they have a a large employed workforce of W-2s. So then COVID hit, then ER volume and hospital floor volume went down. So they started laying off or furloughing people. But see, if they had like 20 to 30% of their workforce is just contingent to begin with, they could have actually flexed it up and down without having to do a lot of those things, right? I think more of recognition is coming around that. But also you have massive shortages all over the country, especially in rural areas, mm-hmm. non-metro areas where there's just not enough providers, right? Right. And that's a growing problem. That's a growing problem. And the number of people going through medical school is, not, is, is totally outpacing the amount of residency spots. And that, that's a government issue, the opening up more spots in terms of residency programs and, and, and being able to fund doctors to teach residency programs and all those things that that's a it's a solvable problem but you know in many cases our government is in gridlock over things like this so the shortage of provi- just the raw shortage right of providers is growing and growing but then the the real problem is the allocation of supply and demand right you have a place like cleveland that is saturated with providers they have no issue cleveland clinic does not have like massive issues yeah, And they have a residency program too, right? So they can have people moonlight and fill in extra shifts, right? But you take a place like Finlay, Ohio, they don't have that luxury, right? And they have, they have W-2 staff, but they have to augment it with a layer of contingent people who are freelancers. And so we call that, we really call that contingent, right? You're not filling in the place of somebody who's missing. You're just, you're there because if you're not there, the hospital can't uh, have the same amount of throughput. Right, right.
1: Meeting the demand.
0: Yeah. Or even worse, if you don't have the same amount of throughput, when, what hospital administrators are often going to say is, okay, well, we need to have the same amount of throughput. So, well, how do you, if you're going to have the same amount of throughput with the, with fewer doctors than you actually need to be staffed with, then those doctors are going to get worked more. And that's why you always hear about burnout, right? Physician burnout is a huge problem and the suicide rate is twice the average in America and all these types of things, right? And then it got exacerbated during something like COVID, right? So what what really the 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 root, the way I like to think about it and I actually, you know, because of my operations background and supply chain background and all these things, there's a massive supply chain issue in this whole mm-hmm. thing. It's the staffing supply chain. And the ability to move supply to where the demand is is very limited. Some of it is because of of self-imposed things where we shoot ourselves in the foot, like like you know not being able to have a single national medical license, right? So it's like okay, I have a ton of doctors who live in Missouri, but they can't practice in Kansas because they don't have a Kansas license. It's like, right, but they right, right. you know it's like come on, you know like <laughs> but there should just be one national medical license, but there's not. And now with telemedicine, it's starting to kind of bubble up. There's this thing called the Interstate Medical License Compact, but it's a long ways to go. So there's not a fluidity because of regulations, but there's also the biggest problem is not the regulation fluidity. The biggest problem is things like credentialing and the amount of time it takes, three to six months, over hundred days to credential a doctor. Lots of like manual processes and med staff offices having to call up and verify the same facts over and over again. Every place a, a doctor wants to work, this is obviously a problem you guys know very, very well at Axel. <laughs> sounds, <and> sounds familiar. <laughs> as the problem you guys are trying to solve. So, and then, you know, ultimately, right? If so, we this elastic on-demand, on-demand workforce that we're trying to enable with technology and better process, that's really what higher medical is all about. It benefits the provider. So I kind of described that. It benefits the employer because then they can have adequate throughput, which therefore translates into revenue <laughs> for the hospital right right without destroying their workforce and having people leave and having turnover and having people have mental health problems cuz lots of doctors have mental health crises that they're going through right now too and and then ultimately you serve patients better right you have less malpractice you have you have less issues happen because you have people who are fresh and able to work who are and you have a well staffed well running machine right so at the heart of it higher medical is is, you know, we, we, we tend to start by talking about the provider, but it's, it's helping the employer. It's creating a machine that's much more efficient. And it happens to be that the very first place that we're starting this foothold is in the freelance market. So, but we have, we have ambitions to go beyond only having a person, like one provider being a freelancer at, at a single location or multiple locations. Ultimately, the benefit of having a vetted high quality workforce on higher medical is that now that workforce can ultimately self-assemble in ways that we haven't even even fully thought out where they can form maybe a virtual group of practice and and serve clients on our network that need that type of care, right? right know, maybe right. they don't need one GI doctor. Maybe they need five GI doctors, right? And they And they can organize in a certain way. So anyway, pretty long-winded, but that is the... <laughs> The whole—that is the whole thing in a nutshell, I guess. Yeah,
1: no, it, it's it's really interesting. I mean, the benefits are evident for the doctors, for the clinicians, for the healthcare organizations. The macro prospects are there. You have this proliferation of locum tenens over the last fifty years or so. You have this growing physician shortage. But then ultimately, the way I, I kind of think about hire is as this marketplace, if you will. Right? Mm-hmm. It's it's difficult to bring together the supply with you know the physicians, the nurses, the practitioners, with with this demand for work, and so at scale, it, it seems to me it's inevitable. So, something like Hire has to exist in the future. How do you surmount the the initial challenges of of building that marketplace and and tying those pieces together?
0: Yeah, I mean, you, you know, this is my first time as a CEO of a startup, and of course, I picked like a marketplace business, which is one of the hardest kinds of startups to create. <laughs> But uh, I guess I like solving, <laughs> trying to solve hard problems. But yeah, I mean, marketplaces are hard, hard to build because you have to get uh, enough critical mass on both sides to get the flywheel moving. We've been able to, after like years of grinding, I mean, now we have about, we have over a thousand providers on the network and we have um, over 30 clients, healthcare systems, medical groups on the network. And that, that's, that's helping because now our sales cycle is shorter. More natural matches can occur between our algorithm can match people up easier between providers and open needs. And we can focus on so many of the other parts of this whole supply chain issue and the entire revenue wheel, everything from getting clients onto the platform and getting, you know, opportunities posted and matching people up. For opportunities and sending communications automatically. Now we're able to do a lot of those things automatically and and then ultimately moving the credentialing process forward and then getting all the way to finally completed shifts and assignments. And ultimately that's how we generate revenue. It's only when providers actually provide service, when they deliver care is when Hire Medical invoices our clients and pays our providers. So the providers on Hire Medical are all 1099s to Hire Medical. So there's a lot of different parts to the, the overall machine. I don't think that we've fully like surmounted the whole thing yet. I mean, it's still, it's hard building a network. A two-sided marketplace is is hard to build. And I, I mean, you know this well. I mean, Actual is like a three-sided network, actually. So, <laughs> yep, yep. so <laughs> also like hard problems over here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I mean, there there are a lot of things we have to do. You know, one of the things that we have as a big initiative is to make it easier to onboard clients, new, new providers to join the network, right? I mean, think of something like Airbnb, you know, a guest can easily create a profile and sign up and start searching for places to stay. And a host can fully onboard themselves and sign a contract and start, you know, listing their location and all that type of thing. And, you know, we're, we're really stronger on the provider side and they can self-service completely. We need to ultimately get there on the employer side where they can self-service completely. Some segments of the market are there where employers would do that. There are others that are still not fully, I don't think, caught up. And like this 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 concept of doing things this way still isn't familiar enough to some some folks where it's like, oh yeah, you know, we would go on to hire and, you know, we we would post these needs and we'd get matched up and we'd check our dashboard and and we'd do credentialing in an automated way. And I mean, as you know, that's just not how this industry works right now. So some of what we do, we have to do to survive and generate revenue, but we're always having an eye on the future and how do we have to evolve our solution. And, you know, ultimately, we probably will get more picky about the kinds of clients we work with because of the speed at which they're willing to move. You know, I don't think we're quite there yet. I mean, this is where you get in the challenge of balancing, like, you know, you got to have immediate revenue and (laughs) and you need some revenue to get investors excited and, and to come along and feel like, okay, you know, these guys need more fuel and then they can, they can do even more, you know? It's the, it's the catch 22 of early stage startups. Yeah. So, you know, we have, we have some elements of product market fit. I think there's still so much more that I think we need to do to fully say, like we have total product market fit, just being very honest, but, but we're getting there. We're getting there.
1: Yeah. I mean, the the self-service model is highly differentiated from the traditional staffing industry, which as I understand it is notoriously competitive, cutthroat even. I'm curious how you think about higher, you know, strategically differentiated from the traditional staffing company and kind of leveraging technology and, you know, all these efficiencies that, that you're working towards relative to how. You know, historically, this in this industry has worked.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, for one thing, obviously, the technology, bringing technology to bear, in itself, in this industry, I think, is a differentiator. I don't mean. <laughs> Unfortunately, that. yeah, I mean, it just it's it's just an industry that hasn't evolved, and you know, it, it's kind of like uh, I was listening to this uh, podcast today in health. Uh, it, was, it was it was a really smart woman talking about about healthcare challenges, and she said, you know everyone knows this annoying problem. Like when you go to a, a, a doctor that you've been seeing for like, like years, you walk into the office and they give you that piece of paper with the clipboard and you're, they, give, you know, they, they want to scan your insurance card and your driver's license. It's like they've never met you before. It's, <laughs> like, it's like, but I've been coming here for like five years. Like why, are you, why, are, why is a consumer experience so terrible? And why does Amazon know, like, why am I able to go onto Amazon and, like, immediately they recognize me? And not only that, they know what my kids want to buy and they know what my friends want to buy and they know, like, what to present me with and they have all this data and they don't ask for the same stuff over and over again. And, you know, like, the consumer experience is very, very front and center. Mm. And in healthcare, it's not. The whole patient-centric thing that everybody talks about, like, the clipboard thing is, like, the worst patient-centric experience I <laughs> can imagine. It's like what are you doing to me? Like, this is awful. <laughs> it's not enjoyable. So, you know, I think there's a lot, of, a lot of evolution in that area. I think you're starting to see it in things like in Columbus, like the tech technology that's happening. Mm. Like, you're starting to see that, like, there's almost like a, a, a like, I, I love Root. Like, I, I use Root, and it's almost like a fun experience to use Root. You know, but it took a long time for insurance to kind of become... Somewhat consumer friendly and fun. (laughs) Right. And still some sense of empathy. Yeah. the, The
1: whole process.
0: So I think that's kind of where healthcare is at. It's like, I mean, it has a long way to go to kind of be more consumer centric in that way. And then also, when I think about something like staffing, to be provider centric, right? And that's something that actual is trying to solve too. It's like, put the provider in control, allow them to have a digital wallet of all their important credentials because this is the lifeblood of their career. And that's not how how healthcare staffing works today, or even just normal W-2 employment or re of current employee, employees, right? It's actually a painful process, even when you're within the same system year after year, and every two years you have to get re-credentialed. Like, so I think the more we think about things where we put the the right person in the center of the experience, that's how you start to at least crack this so yeah, I mean, important for us to bring technology to it, but it's also a lot about process, smart process, and, you know, really thinking through what the experience should be for the
1: provider, for the employer. Mm, yeah, no, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I kind of want to segue here to, to some personal learnings and, and reflections. You know, over the last few years, have you gone through the process of building Hired to, to where it is today? You know, being a, a first-time CEO, what, what have you learned from from this process?
0: <laughs> oh, man, I don't even know where to begin. Um, <laughs> it's like the most accelerated learning process I've, I've ever had in my life. You know, I actually did complete my MBA before, like right before I started Higher Medical. You know, it's like they always talk about like, you know, if you do an MBA, but like, but like being a CEO of a company is like a real world MBA because you you really are involved in every part of the business, especially in the, you know, the first few years and you need to be, I think, but also you have to be because you're short on resources and you have to understand and have a pulse on everything that's happening in the company. You can't do it all. I mean, I think I've at least tried and I think I've done a better job of, you know, being providing support, but allowing others to execute and, I don't think you can be a good leader if you don't allow others to execute but then provide support, you know, where where it's needed and help build good processes that that people can, you know, can can follow and that are repeatable and having open dialogue and communication. I think the hardest thing that I've, you know, had to struggle with or I don't think I've overcome it by any means. I think it's just it's one of those things where I listen to this podcast, Radical Candor, a lot, and it, it it's a really good podcast on leadership and how to, they have like this quadrant model where they talk about, you know, in the top right quadrant, you care personally, but you challenge directly. And for me, that is uh, something I try to do every day. I'm not always successful, but, you know, I really try to show the person I really care about you and your career progression. And... I have something I need to tell you that will help you be more effective. And, and, and it's because of the fact that I'm being so straightforward with you and honest about where you're falling short. That is a reflection of how much I care about you too. That's a hard thing to do as a leader. But I think the really good leaders I've seen are able to do that. Like, man, I, I love you, Minaj. Like, you're an awesome guy. You care so much. But, you know, I, I want to see you do this, 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 and this differently, you know? And like, if you can show that and do that with like empathy, then I, I think people people will follow you. Hmm. But it's if you fall into any of those other three quadrants, right? So like, if you like, I think one of the one of the quadrants is called ruinous empathy, where like you care personally but you don't challenge directly. Like, I really care about you, but you know, in my way of showing I care about you, I'm not going to like tell you things like that are too direct. So ruinous, ruinous, <laughs> ruinous empathy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I can't remember the names of the other two quadrants,
1: but basically it's just not a place you want to be. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I will say like a lot of uh, things are are connecting for me. I think about your story, you know, from my perspective, I feel like you're, you are a true maven and like connector of people and, and like bringing people up. It's just something I've noticed working with you over the last year. And I was curious how you think about networking and, and curating your time with, with, Great people, because I, I feel like you are very intentional about that.
0: Yeah, you know what though, I I think I have a decent amount of of humbleness to know that I'm generally not the smartest person in the room, and I you know like when I look at a place like Hire, like and and the people I get to work with and stuff, you know I'm I'm genuinely curious and I like to see the way they think. Like I work with you know obviously my co-founders Oliver and Ferris, we're like very different personalities. But, you, you know, both of those guys are like smart as shit, like in their own, <laughs> yeah. own different ways. And I don't know, like, I don't, I'm not saying this in like a negative way towards myself, but I, I guess I just, I don't, I'm like, well, you know, I don't think of myself as like a, it's like a brilliant guy or anything. Like, <laughs> I really don't. I, I just, I am a very curious person and I, I like having conversations with people who, you know, are really like thoughtful, deep thinkers and. And just and fun to be around, and I I I think the way I network with people is just with a genuine curiosity to to learn and also to kind of extend my own experiences in life, and I think I just genuinely enjoy it. I I don't know how maybe I'm intentional, and I just I, I it's just kind of ingrained in me at this point. There's probably some intentionality about it. I think I like being around people who enjoy solving problems and who have a certain kind of grit and determination and they're doing things outside of just beyond their own like gratification or you know uh their own glorification I think <laughs> like they they they're very
1: purpose driven you know right right yeah i'm curious how in your worldly travels and arrival here in cleveland bringing it back to cleveland you know what what is it about cleveland that you know ultimately that that you're here building higher in cleveland and Again, from my perspective, are like a champion of <laughs> of Cleveland and and the startup scene and the entrepreneurship around here. Yeah, really, yeah. really a champion of it. No, thank you. I, I appreciate that,
0: man. I don't know. I mean, I, I I think the time I came here, I came here 14 years ago. Um, I still remember because my son was he's 14 and he was a baby. Like <laughs> I remember, you know, we bought our first house and he was like in his in his little um, car seat uh, and. It's like a second home for me because I grew up in Chicago suburbs and and like now I think of Cleveland as like this like my home, you know, and it's like a mini Chicago in some ways, but I've gotten no I've gotten to know Cleveland better than I ever did get to know Chicago. People are very accessible and people are very like you know willing to help each other and you know there's no way like this company would be where it is. Like I have to say a shout out to all the advisors that we have. Charlie uh, Loheed and Matthew Miller, Gene Groys, uh, Nick Barrett, uh, another advisor of ours in Florida, Sunil Pandia. Like, you know, like having these advisors, like they will tell us like when our baby is ugly and like when we are just that going radical down. candor. Yes. And they care about us deeply. See, we never feel like they don't care about us deeply, but they will tell us like the really hard truth. And they've told us it's like, because we don't want you to waste your time. And we we don't want you we don't want to see you fail. Like so if our strategy for product development's all screwed up or we we're not prepared well prepared enough or if our fundraising plan sucks, like or whatever it might be, like they're just gonna tell us like and it's it's hard sometimes to hear, but then you're like, Man, they're freaking right. <laughs> <laughs> so like just so many people have have uh like I feel like welcomed me to this city and even when I was at Deloitte, I mean, it was like an amazing um, environment of people. And so I just, I, I, I started out here at Deloitte and like, I just continued to grow with, with the city and I just feel like such a, a closeness to it because of probably all the people who have just helped me grow along the way and have really just like cared about me and believed in me, <laughs> you Yeah, know?
1: Yeah. So even in my worst times, you know, like believed in me. That's, that's awesome to hear. <laughs> and uh, get into the the nitty-gritty of of Cleveland. a question that, that we are asking everyone coming on is yeah. uh, is for their not necessarily their favorite thing, but for a, a hidden gem, something that other people may not know about, but is particularly special to, to them about Cleveland.
0: Yeah, I, um, it's not directly in Cleveland, but it's in driving distance from Cleveland. I really like going to Lakeside. Mm. I have a good friend of mine, Ben Linville, who has a, a restaurant in Lakeside too. So Lakeside, if you don't know, is like a, have you ever been there? I've been to Lakeside. So it's, it's a gated community. It was started by the Methodists. I think they went there because to kind of like avoid like persecution. So they kind of set up their own community there. And then like over time it's evolved into this like really kind of awesome, I think it's called like a Chautauqua. I don't really know. Like, there's so many Chautauquas all over the U S or whatever. There's only so many. And it's like this like utopian <laughs> it's pro- I mean, I know it's not, but it seems to me like when you go there, it's like this utopian society. <laughs> it's like, there's like basketball courts everywhere. And you know, there's not too many restaurants. Like in order to have a restaurant there, like you have, it takes like, I took my friend like five years to like get a permit to have his own restaurant there. Oh, wow. um, and There's only like five restaurants in the whole, like, it's a square mile. People just go there and hang out. And it's just a really, it's a very unique place, very relaxing. You can take your kids there and like, you know, play on the, you know, it's right on the Lake Erie. So you can like play in Lake Erie and you can go do water sports and you can play basketball there and get food. and
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh, it sounds awesome. I'm building this bucket list of all the hidden gems that I have not been able to go to, and as the world opens up, I'm looking forward to exploring a lot more. Yeah, I mean, if you go to
0: Lakeside too, it's not too hard to go to um, Kelly's Island and all those different
1: things around there too, which are also really cool too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I personally have really enjoyed this conversation. It's been cool, kind of filling in the the gaps of higher that <laughs> I I didn't know existed, but are are really interesting. So I, I really appreciate you coming on Minosian and sharing uh, your story. Cool, man. And the partnership with Actual, I have to say, is, is
0: amazing. So, you know, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe I should, like, interview you sometime. <laughs> someone's <laughs> yeah, got can... to inter- interview you because the story with Actual
1: is also pretty awesome. Well, we'll get there someday. Yep. yep. Um, awesome. Well, if, if, if people, clinicians, hospitals, whoever it is, wants to, wants to follow up with you on, on anything uh, that, that we talked about, where is the best place for them to, to find you?
0: You know, you can always send me an email, mjaveri at highermed.com. It's just M-J-H-A-V-E-R-I at hyrme um, You can also email info at highermed.com, or you can go to our website, um, com.
1: That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, so shoot us an email at layoftheland at upside.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland, at thetagan, or at sternhefe J-E-F-E. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please email us or find us on Twitter and let us know. And if you love our show, please leave a review on iTunes. That goes a long way in helping us spread the word and continue to help bring high-quality guests to the show. Taken Horden and Jeffrey Stern developed the Lay of the Land podcast in collaboration with The Up Company, LLC. At the time of this recording, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the companies which appear on this show unless otherwise indicated. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Founders Get Funds and its affiliates or actual and its affiliates or any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. We have not considered your specific financial situation nor provided any investment advice on this show. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next week.